President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor, and also a Registered Representative of Foresight Fund Services. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of so many investment products. These are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree Affiliates. An interesting week in the market. A lot of global political tensions here. We've had a little bit of a sell-off after no sell-offs in the market, really. Um, Professor Siegel is going to join us for some commentary at the top of the hour here. We have two guests in the studio. Wes Gray, welcome back, Wes. Thanks for coming back to the studio here. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. We've got another Wharton faculty, Nick Rusinoff. Uh, Hello. Welcome. Thank you for having me, too. Yeah, we're going to get uh, a great conversation with these two gentlemen here going in just a minute. But, Professor, maybe we could start off the show. Just your thoughts on what we have going in the markets here. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we saw the with the tension on North Korea, we saw the VIX jump above uh, 17. Wow. I mean, I think a lot of people were short the VIX. It's a huge move. Um Usually you get a couple percentage points downward moving S&P for every point up on VIX. But, uh, you know, really the market, you know, took a couple percent decline. Um, and I, I think I do not think these tensions are going to rise. I, I think it's a war of words that's going to fade. I mean, VIX is already now down to about 14 and a half from over 17. So my feeling is that, you know, that the, all the trend lines on the, on the stock market seem to be intact. Uh, we saw them sell off like this in May. I think more important was what happened today on the consumer price index coming in again for fourth consecutive time under expectations. Kills any, almost virtually kills any chance of a hike in September. And a lot of people are questioning whether even December is on uh, the uh, agenda here. Remember, they will be announcing a taper, so they will be selling uh, bonds into the market. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they, they, they can't blame this low inflation on these temporary factors like, uh, you know, the wireless phone rates going down, everything that they did uh, talk about earlier this month. So this is, they're really not meeting, meeting the attack. The doves are really getting the upper hand here. Um, I mean, I, I saw a headline where Neil Kashkari, president of the Minneapolis Fed, said that, uh, you know, inflation is a ghost story. Uh, you know, that everyone tells about it, but is not happening uh, anywhere. So, um, uh, you know, that that I think is 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 really important. We saw the long bond, you know, this morning go below um, 220. The Fed doesn't want to flatten the curve much longer. They've already got the, um, you know, the funds rate up to one and one and a quarter. So they've really flattened the curve, you know, the, the long short down to about 100 basis points. And, you know, to keep on pushing it up. Without the long bond going up is uh, is not, I think, a wise policy. So that's, I think, that's really important. I mean, earnings are still coming in, you know, quite well. Um, uh, analysts are looking for 127 dollars on operating earnings this year. At today, right now, at the current S and P, that's a 19 point one timers earnings. That's a very reasonable PE ratio. 
I think given um, uh, you know, uh, given uh, given interest rates, certainly it's certainly still higher than the long run average, but given the interest rate, still a, a good ratio. So I still think the major uptrend is is there. There's always unexpected things that can happen. Um, uh, that's what you have to deal with in the market. But um, I, I still I still uh, see stocks uh, going up. In fact, it was interesting because. On Wednesday, I was with Bob Schiller. We were being interviewed in New York together about the market, and both of us thought the market was going to go up in the in the short run. Even though he's long run bearish, he, he still said the scenarios for for short run positive equity uh, action are, are are still in place. So, how do you think when you get these big uh, events like the North Korea stuff in the news? I mean, how do you how should investors? You know, you try to keep people accountable with stocks for long run, but how do you keep people? When you get these tensions, short run, I mean, and, and any other comments on, on what that situation is unfolding here? Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, you know, who knows? You, you know, you know, uh, you know, we, we know North Korea leader are, are impulsive. And now again, the big fear is, is, is Trump going to be impulsive? But I don't think he's suddenly going to, you know, I don't think there's going to be any nuclear warheads that are. Uh, shot at one another. I, I actually thought it was interesting, if I am right, I did hear the headline that uh, Shinzo Abe actually supported Trump's uh, harsh words against the North Koreans, which is interesting for uh, Japan, of course, which is uh, well in line, you know, in line for any of the missiles that uh, might be shot. But I, I you know, I, I still think, you know, there's no, you know, fundamental here. I, I, Trump has to get approval of China for anything that is action there, and China is just watching the situation at this particular point. Um, but I, I do not think this is going to escalate into anything that is uh, going to be a serious problem for the market. Wes, well, Nick, any questions for the professor while we have him here for some on the market commentary? Sure, you Shorting VIX right now or long VIX? Oh, I mean, I would short VIX at 14 and a half. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's probably going back to 11. Um, then you get the carry trade with the VIX futures. Yeah, capture yeah, contango. I mean, huge, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, carry trade on, on the futures. So if you short, you've actually shorted it, you're getting. <laughs> Um, I mean, it shot up to 17 and a half. I, mean, I think that was the highest since Trump's election um, and then Brexit before then. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was really a, a spike. And I, I, I think that there were so many people that were short volatility and had been doing so well um, that they were just momentum driving onto those positions like the, the inverse VIX. Uh, uh, ETF and, and all that, and all of a sudden I say, oh, okay, time to cover. I made my money, and you know, just you, you saw that rocket up like it did. But I mean, it was much more of a rocketing up. I think that was justified, or certainly that that you saw in the normal downward movement of the market. Usually, to get a VIX spiking to 17, you see five, six, seven percent down on the market, not two or three. So I do think that uh, what you had as a crowded. VIX trade that uh, unwound very, very quickly and, and spiked it up. And I still think at 14 and a half or, uh, you know, that that's uh, higher than I think it'll settle on, uh, down at. Well, very good. Professor, thanks for your comments. Well, 
Thank you very much. Um, so, Wes, uh, maybe we could introduce you. You were just on our show relatively recently, but we have you back here in the studio, CEO of Alpha Architect, uh, a lot of work on, on quantitative finance, value, momentum strategies, how you combine them two together in portfolio settings. Let's talk to our, our listeners a little bit what we're trying to do together here. We're trying to have some pro-academic uh, discussions, uh, and you, you brought Nick uh, enough here to, to do it. Um, you know, I think we want to try to do some shows together here, bring you down both here in Philadelphia um, what do you think here? Yeah, you got it. I think the the intent here is we've got geniuses and the world's expert on <laughs> foreign exchange, and he happens to be in our backyard. And yeah, I think it'd be a cool idea to start bringing folks like this down and try to help us turn their academic insights into practical applications so all of us, you know, less smart people can make better portfolios and make better decisions. And so to give your background for how you guys knew each other. Wes, you want to go ahead? Sure. So, uh, you know, we entered the uh, Chicago Finance PhD program in 2002, and I sat around and looked at everyone. I was like, wow, there's a Russian math genius from Harvard. I should probably hang out with that guy. And his name was Nick, and we've been friends ever since. And now he's a very successful Wharton professor here. So, how, so tell, Nick, tell us a little bit about your studies at Chicago, who you studied under, what your focus was, what got you to uh, PhD in finance. Thanks. So I've always been excited about finance since, you know, I was probably a college student, probably just like Wes, I guess. Um, and, you know, Chicago is just an amazing, unique place to study finance as a, as a, as a graduate student. And, of course, you know, Gene Fama being the uh, really the founder of the profession of academic finance, as, as we know it, uh, but also lots of uh, lots of other people. And I was very lucky to... Uh, study with him, kind of entering the PhD program, and later on uh, working with uh, Lars Hansen. And, of course, both of them uh, were winners of the Nobel Prize jointly with uh, Bob Schiller, who Jeremy um, mentioned uh, uh, earlier, and uh, lots of other people who perhaps have not yet gained that uh, that sort of uh, fame and notoriety uh, uh, worldwide. Uh, but it's really kind of an intellectual uh, powerhouse in economics and finance and uh, uh, those were, of course, you know, great years meeting uh, bright guys and like Wes and a bunch of others uh, who are now my colleagues in the profession academically or uh, out in the uh, in the business world. Uh, and kind of, you know, yeah. those days in Chicago, I think, are 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 the days that we all remember very uh, very fondly. Yeah, I don't remember them that fondly because I remember <laughs> I getting know. hazed all the time. It was it was a lot of fun, a lot of pain, but. Uh, as you probably remember, you know, doing 15 hours a day studying was, uh, you know, I don't oh. know if it was fondly. Uh, <laughs> it fades away. That's Come true. On. It fades away and you remember the good times. So what was your PhD topic on? So I, I was kind of an eclectic guy, actually, in uh, in my PhD years, and I guess still am, because um, my uh, dissertation was centered on uh, status concerns and how status concerns are important for risk-taking decisions that uh, that people make and how we can think about entrepreneurship as in part being a result of a sort of game of status that people are basically willing to take uh, pretty extraordinary risks sometimes um, that are hard to explain from the sort of traditional finance standpoint when we think about you know, mean variance analysis. It really doesn't make much sense when we think about you know, the extreme stakes that uh, the people who plunge their entire you know, 
wealth and human capital like Wes. Into, a, into a business. Yeah, he, I mean, he. Yeah, you, you got to be. The, it's the young and dumb component, right? The uh, not the rational agent, but the crazy agent. Well, we've had those debates, uh, and back in Chicago, of course, and and since then, people say, well, there's overconfidence, and 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 you know, these overconfident guys are the ones who plunge themselves in, and. Uh, my view was always that well, overconfidence doesn't necessarily mean stupid. It's just you know people are people are different in how they they view the world and things that they value. And some people really value that chance of of success, either uh, to prove themselves uh, or or to kind of uh, one up uh, the competition. And, and my paper was mostly focused on maybe that 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 other aspect, not to not to kind of. Uh, undervalue uh, the the proving yourself component, which of course is important for for for, for many entrepreneurs. Again, yeah. or you just don't want to have an actual real job, which is my scenario. <laughs> right. Uh, well, that's <laughs> another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good reason to be an entrepreneur. So, where did your uh, so after you left your PhD, when did you uh, come to Wharton? Did so I came here in uh, 2007 and have been here ever since. So this was my first job out of uh, out of grad school. I was uh, fortunate to. Uh, uh, you know, landed a, a pretty good institution, I would say, and uh, I've been happy yeah. to uh, happy. stay here this entire time. And uh, been teaching here, um, and, and obviously doing my research and, and branching out further and further in the various uh, various areas. Uh, and I guess global macro is the the topic of the day, and you know that's that's what I've been doing a lot of, along with with with, with other things. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, Makes a ton of sense, and I re- recommend everyone go out there and look at uh, Nick's CV. Just Google him, and if you read it, it's like a who's who of foreign exchange and currency research. And Nick, if you can just help us out here, we were just talking about the carry trade in the context of uh, VIX futures, but just explain to the audience what is the carry trade, what's kind of the, the genesis of your research. Just- right, of course. So, So the carry trade... In currencies, in particular, is probably one of the oldest global macro trading strategies. And if if I were if I had more time, I would probably go back to I don't know 15th century and, and give you the whole history of how how these things actually have been around for a long time. But really, academically, uh, people have thought about it since since the early 80s. And what is a carry trade? It's basically buying currencies that. Uh, you can get a high interest rate on and uh, using money borrowed from low interest rate currencies to fund the trade. So you learn long, high interest rate, short, low interest rate. You collect the spread and you hope that the exchange rate doesn't move against you, doesn't move to to undo that spread. Now, academics, e- economists in particular, uh, for many years thought that on average, this trade should not yield any return. Uh, that if you buy in high interest rate currency, that currency should depreciate to basically uh, kind of wipe out the, the interest rate differential. That's known as the uh, uncovered interest parity relation. Well, it turns out that relation just does not hold. And the research going back to once again, Gene Fama, who I mentioned, and Lars Hansen, who I mentioned in the early 80s, uh, showed that. It just does not work. High interest rate currencies do not, on average, uh, tend to depreciate, and low interest rate currencies don't tend to uh, appreciate, again, on average, which means that, on average, buying high interest rate currencies and shorting low interest rate currencies does generate uh, an average return. And that's what the carry trade really is, is is all about. This is not to say, of course, that sometimes things don't happen. And we saw, of course, a big... Um, Example of that during the financial crisis when high interest rate currencies really plunged and low interest rate currencies 
um, such as Japan, Japanese yen or Swiss franc, appreciated, causing massive losses to carry trade uh, focused uh, uh, portfolios. Um, but this is not to say that on average these strategies are not profitable. It just says that well, there is there is potentially substantial risk in those strategies, and that that's been the focus of uh, of a lot of my research. So, I mean, how do you, when you think about this carry trade, um, how much do you think the I mean, people should allocate to these types of strategies? Do you think it's a what part of people's portfolios would a carry trade be part of? And do you still think you know after the financial crisis is still relevant there? So it certainly is relevant. Uh, evidence says that uh, the carry trade is still alive and well. Uh, but of course, what a lot of people learned the hard way, perhaps, in the financial crisis is that they're not uh, kind of extraordinarily good deals. They're pretty good deals, but they carry they carry risk. Sorry for the unintended pun. Uh, so they're certainly a part of a well-diversified portfolio that includes some kind of global macro component to it, but one has to be careful not to overload on the risk, realizing that there is kind of this common factor structure in foreign exchange, and this is uh, from the research that I did with Han Lustig and, and Adrian Verlan uh, at Stanford and MIT respectively now, um, that basically shows that high interest rate currencies, they tend to move together, and low interest rate currencies, they tend to move together kind of in the opposite direction in a way that seems to suggest that in kind of global good times, the high interest rate currencies appreciate and low interest rate currencies depreciate. But then in kind of global bad times, times of high macroeconomic uncertainty, high financial uncertainty, again, global financial crisis, of course, being the prime example, but not the only one. We saw that in 98 during the sort of Russian and LTCM crisis, uh, for example, um, these things uh, move in the ways that are kind of kind of unpleasant if you have an overly concentrated uh, concentrated portfolio. Well, let me just reintroduce real quickly. We're talking with Nick Rusinoff, finance professor here at the Warren School, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architects in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Let me turn it over to Wes for a question here. Uh, love it. Thanks for explaining that, Nick. Uh, you have a really cool paper, Commodity Trade and the Carry Trade. You, just map us or walk us through this. You, you talk about how the carry trade there seems to be this risk premium. I mean, you have this really cool theory about how that may be related to commodity-producing countries. You just want to explain that and the intuition about how that theory works? Right, of course. So that paper started from a very simple observation, that if we look at countries that have been historically high interest rate-yielding uh, currencies like Australian dollar or New Zealand dollar, uh, versus countries that have been historically low interest rate current uh, countries, these sort of funding currencies that people use to, to to fund their carry trade strategies, like the Japanese yen or the Swiss franc, there are very kind of noticeable differences between those countries' uh, economies, and they don't just boil down to size. What they seem to boil down to, to a large extent, is what do these countries produce and what do they export? And this is where this notion of commodity currencies comes in. If we think about Australia, well, it's, this is clearly a commodity exporting economy primarily. The same holds for New Zealand, same holds for Norway, uh, to a large extent Canada. And uh, those are these prime high interest rate uh, currencies, the Australian dollar, New Zealand dollar, and the region crone. And then if we look at uh, these historically low interest rate uh, countries like uh, the Japanese yen is our, our basic funding currency, but also Swiss franc, Germany you can think of, especially pre-euro when we had the Deutschmark, 
Uh, and what are these countries uh, specializing in? Well, they're exporters of sophisticated manufactured goods primarily, and they're not particularly commodity rich. They import pretty much all of their uh, basic uh, commodity that is needed for the production of those sophisticated manufactured goods. So why should that be somehow connected to the carry trade? Well, if we think about the commodity currencies, to the extent that these are currencies of countries exporting commodities, uh, the prices of commodities co-move with the exchange rates of those uh, of those countries simply by kind of this terms of trade uh, relation that is uh, that is very uh, known in macro, and it's not it, it's not surprising, of course, when the country's main exports appreciates, that's going to push up uh, the value the value of the currency. Well, when are commodities going to globally uh, expensive? Well, at the at the top of the global business cycle when global economies booming, lots of commodities needed that pushes up commodity prices. Um, and when do these countries uh, suffer of outflows uh, and fall of uh, fall of the uh, of the cur- their currency? Well, at the time when commodity prices plunge. Again, this was exactly what happened during the global financial crisis. We saw a massive uh, plunge in trade generally internationally. And in particular, we saw a massive plunge in commodity prices, and with it, uh, exchange rates of these countries that are exporters of these basic commodities. Again, Australian dollar, New Zealand dollar, uh, and Norwegian krone. And that was, of course, a large component of the the, the, the pain that the, the carry trade portfolios uh, experience. At the same time, the currencies of these commodity importing countries, countries that are exporters of manufactured goods like Jap- Japan and, uh, and and Switzerland and the Eurozone to a large extent, actually appreciate it. Um, so that's kind of suggests that dude, those countries are, those curren- currencies are, are a hedge against this global macroeconomic risk. So the fact that they earn kind of a negative uh, risk premium is not so surprising. You, in some sense, you're, you're buying insurance by buying Japanese yen or Swiss franc. And in fact, people talk of them as being safe haven, uh, safe haven currencies. And, and in our paper, we kind of show why this is so. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I've, you know, we, at Wisdom Tree, we've been focused on these commodity currency strategies and trying to collect the carry off of a high interest country like Brazil today. Brazil, probably 10% interest rates. It's absolutely correlated to commodities. It is a direct commodity play. There's no equity risk. You buy the commodity beta and you're paid 10%. What commodity strategy today will pay you 10% versus all these none, commodities yeah. that will have a cost? I mean, so what do you think about allocating to commodities directly? So I think there's lots of excitement, of course, about uh, commodities, maybe less so now than it was before the crisis when uh, people pushed into commodity funds and realized then that, that they happened to not be uncorrelated to the global equities or any any kind of global asset class. Uh, well, our paper speaks quite directly to this, uh, saying that, well, if you are in a global macro space in any part of your portfolio, your chances are you're exposed to the carry trade. That being kind of the main kind of mainstay of uh, at least FX components of, of global macro, and within that pocket, you are substantially exposed to the commodity price fluctuations, both on the upside and then especially in the downside, perhaps. So, if you are in commodities in one pocket of your portfolio and you are in FX in another pocket of your portfolio, you shouldn't treat those pockets as separate. They're ultimately pockets of the same portfolio, and you could be overloading. Uh, on the commodity risk. And perhaps if you want to have commodity exposure, but you don't necessarily have to absolutely hold uh, a long-only commodity 
Commodity Futures Index say, you probably are close to being as as well off by doing this commodity currency carry trade that is already giving you a commodity price exposure and gives you the carry trade risk premium without the various liquidity issues that may be associated with the commodity futures that are certainly not as uh, as uh, liquid as the FX market, for example. Super fascinating uh, question for you. So I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm an, an advisor, an allocator, and I've got an opportunity to buy an emerging market equity, or I can buy in this carry trade, interest rate carry trade. Do, do you have any recommendations? Do you do both? Do you split them? How do you think about that decision? So, so you have to obviously think about uh, the portfolio it kind of cohesively in in, in, a, in a wholesome way, in the sense that um, these are again, as I said, not separate pockets. When you treat commodity and effects, and also equity and effects are also uh, not 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 separate animals. Uh, now, what we see quite a bit with uh, with uh, equity returns in various countries is that the correlation with the exchange rates of that country. Uh, could be, uh, well, uh, sometimes negative, especially negative in the case of actually of these uh, of safe haven countries like 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 Japan. Uh, with emerging markets, this is not quite uh, as obvious. And in fact, we know oftentimes emerging market currencies will plunge at the times when those currencies experience uh, kind of bad uh, bad times. But of course, their equity markets will plunge as well. So they're uh, doing a, an emerging market equity. Uh, uh, play together with uh, some sort of uh, carry trade play is potentially uh, doubling up on, uh, on the, same the same risks. Yeah, same so risk. you have to be you have to be careful and you have to uh, kind of analyze the whole portfolio together. I wouldn't I wouldn't say one versus the other, but you have to I think understand what is the risk premium that you're getting on your carry end and what is the risk premium you hope to get on the on the equity on the equity side, and then look at the correlation to kind of establish how sure. much of risk you're actually loading up on. That, that's interesting. So, to, so the synthesize, essentially, you're kind of going to end up buying almost the same risk, whether you go emerging equities or this interest rate carry. And really, the decision makers got to ascertain: well, relatively, the carry trade is cheaper than maybe, maybe the emerging market equities, and that's a decision point someone could make because essentially they're going to deliver. The similar sort of correlation in your that's, portfolio. That's right. They may be they may be exposing you to the same risks fundamentally. Which one uh, is better at delivering uh, the expected return? Uh, that depends. And different volatility levels. So a currency strategy is going to have, especially if you look at like emerging market equities, which package the equity risk right. and then the currency risk, and then they are like eighty to ninety correlated. Right. So it sort of leverages up your equity risk, and then you've got just currency risk, probably half the equity risk. Or, right. Or well, two thirds to have to, depending on the currency. Yeah. yeah. And then you get, but you get paid the in right. the EM. It could be That's five, right. four to five percent, or eight, ten percent in Brazil. Yeah. That's right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it out there because I know this is Jeremy's favorite topic. But uh, you know, Wisdom Tree does a lot of FX hedging on equity, um, and Jeremy could probably speak to this as well. But do you have like an overarching opinion on is it does it make sense to hedge your Equity risk internationally as a U.S. investor does it depend? Let, lay it out there for us. We'll have a debate. Right. So, so as I mentioned earlier, you have to be careful about the correlation between uh, the FX component and the actual equity market risk in the local currency, for example. 
and that correlation differs quite a bit. Now, if we think that this carry trade uh, profitability is really a risk premium, which you know I've argued that to some extent is the case because we're exposed to this global uh, global macro risk. Well, then you wonder, well, if these, these safe haven currencies, they appreciate in bad times, what is happening to their stock markets? Well, in the bad times, all stock markets go down. So you expect a negative correlation. And in fact, that's what you see for those safe haven currencies, especially for Japan, maybe slightly less so for, uh, well, the Eurozone now or, or the Swiss franc, but it's, it's there to some extent, um, which tells you that hedging uh, the FX risk there is actually, in some sense, exposing you to more risk because you're giving up this natural hedge that already is there in holding and holding those stock market portfolios because the, 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 the stock market in local currency will depreciate more in a bad time than, uh, than, the, than the same portfolio denominated in dollars simply because that currency is, is appreciating. Uh, in a crisis or, or, or a similar kind of spike of, uh, of global uncertainty. That's, of course, not necessarily the case uh, with some of these riskier high interest rate currencies. But there, uh, if you want to hedge at a, uh, FX uh, risk exposure, you're going to be paying for it by giving up, giving up the carry. So in some sense, hedging uh, could be... Uh, in some situations, particularly costly, if you're giving up giving up the carry, or in other cases, in in Japanese case, for example, you're you're getting paid to hedge because the interest rate differential may be negative, but then you are exposing yourself to extra risk because you're giving up the natural risk, the natural hedging. We're going to have to take a quick break. You know, I want to jump into this conversation. So the second we come back from the break, we're going to continue this conversation. Uh, Great conversation here. We've got Wesley Gray in the studio, Nick Rusinoff. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, You're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. We've got two great guests in the studio. Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, Nick Rusinoff, finance professor here at the Wharton School, focusing on currency, the carry trade, commodity currencies. We started off with a great discussion uh, on just Nick's research on, on on the carry trade here generally, we started really talking about hedging, which is one of the things I want to jump back into. Um, Wes, did you want to lead it off here? Or sure, sure. Just so, just to recap, what, what we brought up was a discussion of does it make sense if you're a U.S. based investor, do and we're investing internationally, do we want to hedge that currency risk that we implicitly own when we buy international equities and Basically, what I think Nick highlighted is, like any good economist, there's trade-offs, costs That's and benefits. Right. And we all know that Jeremy is a uh, you know well-studied in this subject. So, Jeremy, you want to add your input on the? Yeah. So, I mean, I think – so he, Nick makes some great points on the fact that there's some currencies where you get paid to hedge, which is the carry trade, some currencies where it costs you to hedge. Uh, and the example of Brazil, where it's going to cost you 10%, I absolutely would say I do a, I would really, in my world, separate developed world and emerging markets. Emerging markets, there's generally a, a higher cost, 3 to 5% on average. And because of the carry trade, you don't hedge there generally. Largely leave that unhedged. I tend to talk about hedging from the developed world, where I say it's a quote-unquote better-than-free option. You're paid to hedge. And for a broad EFA basket, if you look at the last 40-plus years of the history of EFA. If you just look at the stocks, the volatility is something like 15.4. You do stocks plus currency, the volatility is 17. So for the entire EFA developed world basket, currency adds to the volatility profile. Now, do you, does it add to your expected return profile? Unhedged, you could say perhaps no. It's just risk. Now, 
if you're on average paid, you know, if you look at the, the history, the dollars actually had a slightly higher interest rate than all these other markets. So you actually have had a a, a quote unquote carry. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, now in Japan, I'll, I'll grant you talked about the the hedge that you get, sort of the volatility hedge. The yen and the stocks move in the exact opposite direction for the last 20, 25 years. And so, yes, if you buy Japan on hedge, you're going to get lower volatility. I could also flip that and say the actual only case to be in Japan today is if you thought the yen was going down. If you thought the yen was going up, you should probably short Japan because it's going to be one of the worst performing markets. That really the best case for Japan is you have a, a, a weak currency and the stocks do well, the exporters do well, profits go up, and you're paid the, the interest rate differential, which is a growing amount. So as the Fed raises rates, the ECB's at negative, Japan's at negative, Swiss is negative. You're probably paid 1% to 1.5% carry to hedge all these foreign currencies today. It's sort of trending in that positive direction. Uh, and for an EFA basket, it has added to your expected volatility all the, you know, basically, generally speaking, all the time, besides for this rare case of Japan for the last 20 years. But even Japan for 30 years, it's added to your volatility profile. Um, not today. So that's that's my general case on on, on hedging there. I, I mean, I think that's that, that's fair. That's a fair point. I mean, I would just uh, you know, caution about the flip side, right? Uh, especially because Japan is a big uh, big market outside of the U.S. That, uh, and so it's a big component of that uh, that EFA basket. Um, and if we are getting into another kind of global recession type situation, yeah. Japan will uh, you know will tank as will everybody else. But its currency chances are will appreciate just like yeah. it had agreed in the in the past cases. So. And that being kind of a big chunk of your of your basket uh, of your equity bas- basket, how much of that uh, basket you want to overlay with uh, with a scary trade effectively, which is what you would be doing by hedging Japan and getting paid to do it, you would be doing part of the carry trade without necessarily sort of the long end component of it. Um, there is there is risk. No, it's, I mean it's interesting. Efa X Japan, how much lower the volatility on that Efa X Japan basket is given the higher volatility that you do get with Japan today. Right, I mean that. So, so once you remove Japan, that that Swiss franc is the other one where it's strongly right. negatively correlated. Yeah, you yeah, saw the exactly, same thing, big pop smaller, in Swiss, right. and then the stocks got hit. So let, let's just turn the geek level up a little bit higher here, because I we had a conversation right. beforehand. I thought it was pretty good. Um, but first, how about Nick introduce this idea of, of momentum and value in currencies, and then maybe Jeremy, you can yeah. talk about how you guys have incorporated that because I think that's super cool. So you, you want to kind of introduce the topic and right. So so beyond the carry, uh, which we talked about, the other quote unquote factors that people talk about when we're talking about quant investing in uh, global macro or other asset classes, for that matter. Uh, are of course value and momentum and value in currencies really is basically uh, buying currencies that are really relatively undervalued on the purchasing power parity basis or simply on the basis of them having relatively depreciated over long periods of time and uh, and shorting currencies that are relatively kind of overvalued or, or too strong um, and uh, momentum is the same thing as it is in pretty much every other asset class. You buy uh, currencies that are trending up and you, you short currencies that are trending down. Now, these two strategies uh, are on average profitable, although I would say uh, in the FX space, they're not necessarily, uh, at least value is not necessarily as prominent as carry. It's much less profitable. Uh, on average, momentum is uh, is generally is generally there. Pretty much all asset classes, and maybe slightly 
slightly weaker in the in the most liquid currencies. There's a bit of a debate about that, so I'm not going to get too much into it. But it, it is there, I think, uh, in general. As again, momentum is there in most uh, in most asset classes. So uh, if if we're kind of serious about uh, uh, FX as an asset class, we of course have to go beyond beyond just the carry trade and look at these other uh, factors as well, value momentum. Awesome. So to summarize, we got carry, but now we've introduced this whole idea of momentum or trend and value. Jeremy, how how do you guys think about this? Because we're getting complicated now. Yeah. No, listen, I think, and, and in the evolution of, of doing strategies and indexes based off of that, I mean, I think the industry for the last 20, 30 years has really just been doing unhedged strategies. We thought about it uh, seven years ago, started offering hedged as the first sort of firm to think about that in, in the ETF world. And, you know, as we kept talking to people and saying, hey, you could just isolate the equity risk, you don't have to think about the currency risk, and Europe and Japan, that really saw interest. The As we evolved our thinking, we started looking at the academics and said, what can you do to try to predict currencies? And value momentum has been powerful everywhere in, in all asset classes, stocks, bonds, commodities, and, and of course, currencies. Um, it's interesting. Our research found exactly, and it's not surprising, found exactly what you said. Value was the weakest of the signals in the in our work. Momentum was the middle signal. Carry was the strongest signal. And we said, well, in some and in some currencies, certain of the signals work better than others. It's sort of not uniformly across every single currency. Every single signal works equally. So we said, all right, let's not cherry pick these signals. Let's try to get diversified baskets. Consider creating a hedge ratio that would be a third value, a third momentum, and a third carry. And hedge when you're paid to do so, when the carry's in your favor. Don't hedge like Australia when it's not in your favor. Hedge when the currency is depreciating. So when momentum's declining, you hedge. Euro started appreciating this year. You take the hedge off on that momentum signal. And then value looks at a PPP and you have wide bands because things can be cheap and stay cheap for a long time. And so you would say very overvalued, very undervalued, sort of middle ranges, and create this aggregate hedge ratio. Uh, and that, to me, I hope is the future of international investing. Try to put on these hedges, take it off, and apply this momentum value carry overlay to a broad equity basket. Got it. So let me summarize here, Jeremy. You're basically putting the global macro hedge fund guys out of business because you're incorporating a very cool currency trade bolted on top of equity and Obviously, you're not doing two and twenty to deliver that. Yeah, very low, reasonable fees. Um, you know, we tried to do it. Uh, try to apply useful academic research applied to managing the risk you get in traditional international equities. Nick, you're the world's expert on this. Does that seem reasonable? What he's doing? I think it makes a lot of sense. I think uh, to me that sounds a lot more sensible than pure hedging of uh, FX risk, no matter what. I would call this smart hedging, but I, I don't know if you want to I like market it, it that I way. I know. But, we uh, absolutely call it factor alpha, I mean, fa- right. factor currency management. Yeah, that I think makes a lot of sense. You've you, you, you got to realize that uh, hedging can be costly if you are uh, giving up uh, what looks like a risk premium to do it, and sometimes you want to harvest that risk premium instead of, instead of paying somebody else uh, to, to, to bear that exposure. Now, I would, I, I sort of put, a, I try to put the bar higher for, to be unhedged. I try to say, hey, you want one bet. You want the stock risk. You're paid to take equity risk. Is it? Are you really paid to be long the euro all the time? And I would say you're not paid to be long the euro all the time. Absolutely. So, right. so people have been defaulting to be un, long the euro all the time for not a lot of good reason. And then the question is, they don't really want to make the decision themselves. And so they say default to leave it to my active guys, and the active guys don't actually do it. That's, that's been my big proposition where we're trying to challenge these unhedged guys all the time. 
Well, I think it's also, again, uh, a matter of a holistic perspective. What do you have in your portfolio and how much of FX risk do you want to have in there? And sometimes you may have too much. Sometimes you may have not enough. And just uh, kind of looking at the equity side of the portfolio alone may or may not be the right thing to do. Sure. Yeah, that's true. And to your point, like a sophisticated buyer may say, hey, just deliver me your unhedged and it's on me to determine if I want to put the hedging on or not. Like I don't need the 200 IQ brain Jeremy Swartz doing it for me because I'm going to figure it out on my own. So there's probably a buyer for everything. That's right. That's right. Um, Makes sense. So geeking out a little bit more, you have also another fascinating paper on the dolly, or sorry, the dollar carry trade. Explain people that one. Right. So, so I've so far talked mostly about these kind of extreme carry uh, currencies like Japan versus Australia. Uh, now, what about the dollar? Dollar is clearly not uh, not a historically high interest rate uh, currency, nor is it a historically low interest rate currency. Uh, so, does it mean that it's irrelevant to the carry trade? Well. Uh, Turns out, no, but in a very particular way that the dollar has uh, a carry trade of its own that is, in some sense, much more dynamic in nature uh, than what I talked about vis-a-vis this commodity commodity currencies or safe haven currencies. Uh, and what I mean by this is that you can time the dollar based on the dollar uh, the dollar interest rate, the U.S. interest rates relative to the interest rates of other developed countries like the, the, the G10 uh, currencies that are most uh, most commonly uh, traded currencies. And basically, it makes sense to short the dollar when the dollar interest rate is uh, is low when you're basically getting paid uh, to, to short the dollar and uh, invest in other currencies that are higher yielding. And it makes sense to buy the dollar when the dollar interest rate is higher on average than elsewhere. And then, again, it sounds like the basic carry trade. You you buy the currency with a high interest rate. You borrow the currency with a low interest rate. Uh, but here, of course, the direction of your dollar bet changes over time, and it seems very closely tied to the, to the U.S. business cycle. So when is it U.S. interest rate particularly low? Well, when the U.S. enters a recession. Uh, in particular, when U.S. enters a, a, a recession before the rest of the world or is in a deeper recession than the rest of the world where U.S. interest rates really plunge relative to the interest rates of other uh, developed, uh, developed countries. Now, uh, what does that, what does that uh, really mean and how do we think about this? Well, y- you have to realize that when is, uh, when is a U.S. interest rate low? Well, again, when the U.S. is experiencing a, a tough, uh, tough time, economically and what does it mean to be short the dollar that basically means you're loading up on uh foreign exchange risk vis-a-vis uh, vis-a-vis the US uh US basket you're basically you know shorting the dollar means buying currencies of, of other uh, of other developed countries and you can imagine that to the US investor that may not sound like the most appealing proposition in the middle of a recession uh, kind of loading up on this uh, FX risk. But this is, uh, again, the nature of sort of the risk-return trade-off. You seem to be getting a uh, high return uh, for loading up on uh, foreign exchange risk vis-a-vis the dollar in the times of the U.S. Uh, US recession, and you seem to be getting paid to uh, load up on the dollar in the times when the uh, U.S. economy uh, is is doing well. So it's a much more kind of a dynamic uh, risk return trade off uh, than uh, the, this commodity carry uh, that I talked about before. We just got to do a really quick introduction here. We've got Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, in the studio. We got Nick Rusinoff, 
uh, finance professor here at the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking a lot about currencies, carry trades, um, how you structure that in a portfolio with international equities. Um, Nick, any research points you want to highlight things that we haven't covered, any new areas of, of topic that's, that's worth highlighting? Well, sure. I think uh, kind of a natural point of segue here, uh, since I talked about the commodity currencies and I talked about the dollar as a sort of a separate thing. Uh, well, clearly, the U.S. is neither a commodity country, nor is it a country like Japan or, or, or Switzerland that has to import virtually all of its commodities and only exports its sophisticated manufactured goods. The U.S. has kind of historically been in the middle, uh, both in terms of its trade composition and in terms of its kind of average interest rates. Now, Recently, we've seen uh, the U.S. moving a little bit towards uh, the commodity commodity country uh, direction. It's it, it, to, to be sure, it's moved around over time, but not not very much. It's never been like Australia. Or it's never been like like Japan. But recently, over the last uh, few years, thanks to the to the shale uh, energy boom in the U.S., the U.S. has become much less dependent on foreign sources of. Uh, uh, oil in particular, um, and of course, natural gas has been booming here for for quite a few years, which moved the U.S. kind of a little bit towards uh, the, the the commodity country uh, in some sense ranking in terms of its its trade composition. And in some of my recent research, I've been trying to explore kind of the role of uh, kind of technological developments in uh, in the, the shale uh, oil industry in particular. Uh, on on the U.S. markets, in particular, kind of the impact on the U.S. equity markets that have, of course, been doing extraordinarily extraordinarily well. Excuse me for uh, the last, let's say, five, six, seven years. And of course, these a lot of those were the years of the shale oil boom from 2012 to about 2014, 2015, where we then had a bit of a, a kind of unpleasant period having to do with kind of the OPEC response to. Uh, the U.S. Uh, growing uh, oil production, with the uh, U.S. Uh, not uh, OPEC not being willing to support the, the oil prices uh, in the hope of potentially squashing the U.S. shale production, and uh, there there was quite a bit of a decline in the markets after that. But the U.S. shale uh, production has proved quite uh, quite resilient, uh, consistent with the idea that there's been tremendous uh, technological innovation in that uh, in that sector and. Uh, my co-authors and I, uh, Eric Gilly, who is uh, who is uh, a professor here at uh, Orton School as well, my finance department, and uh, Rob Brady, who is uh, my co-author on, uh, on the earlier work that I mentioned, who was a PhD student here a while ago. We we um, look at this and we estimate uh, a, a quite substantial contribution of the shale oil technology to the value of the U.S. equity markets uh, on the order of <laughs> two to three, three and a half trillion dollars, perhaps, of value. Uh, contributed by that uh, by the technology. Do you guys have a forecast for oil? Do you think it's going down from here? Or uh, well, uh, any forecasts are obviously are better made after the fact because it's once you're crystal ball, just right. look out, yes, tell us yes, the future, uh, so we can go make some trades. What I think what we've learned is uh, is that uh, the innovations in the in the shale drilling uh, and the fracking um, uh, sector are such that uh, the cost of extracting oil from those formations will uh, will probably continue to go uh, to go down which means that there's a natural ceiling uh, to how kind of 
how far yeah. up uh, oil prices can go. Right. And U.S. is becoming sort of a swing producer uh, in a way which suggests that oil is not going to go much higher than it has been uh, in the yeah. foreseeable future. I mean, I'm following, I follow a lot of the traders on oil. I mean, it's all tied to emerging markets, right? Because all this commodity currencies sure, and sure. oil is, is a big part. And you've seen you've actually seen EM do well even as oil struggled in some parts. But it does seem like the break-even oil price is a lot lower it, it could be in the 40s. I've seen some people say get down to 30 at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very it's very much uh, dependent on which formation you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm not an expert on geology uh, by any means. And my co-author, Eric, is probably a better expert on the specifics of uh, uh, of where the oil is actually coming from and, and uh, what are the costs that one can expect uh um, and, and those different places. But, yeah, absolutely. The, the, I think the bottom line is the U.S. is going to be able to produce oil much cheaper than it has been uh, for, for for quite some time. And that's, of course, bad news for some of the emerging markets. I mean, just look at Venezuela. I, mean, I think that, that kind of tells you that relying on, on oil as a driver of your economy is going to be a non-starter. I have to ask you to predict another thing. Um, <laughs> one of the things I've, I've learned from reading your research and it just made me think about this is right now we kind of the, the u.s dollar and the and our bonds and everything we're kind of looked at as almost crisis alpha like if things go bad we're at least a safe haven but it sounds like from reading your research to the extent that we ironically become more and more of a commodity producer we could more less and less become the crisis alpha currency so if people kind of build their portfolios and look at the u.s dollar as you know the safe haven as we're in this dynamic shift potential to be now a commodity producer, h- how do you see that maybe changing our status as a you know safe haven? Or do you see it changing? Well, first of all, I don't think the dollar was ever a safe haven to the same extent uh, as the yen or the Swiss franc has been, right? And again, the, the dollar carry uh, uh, facts that I've talked about suggest that it's been very much dependent on where the U.S. monetary policy is relative to other developed uh, Developed countries, but uh, it's a good point that as we become more of a commodity uh, heavy, I don't want to say commodity exporting necessarily, although definitely those can be exports of natural gas and and, and even oil. Um, these properties will potentially shift, and the dollar may become a riskier riskier currency. Uh, but that you know that remains to be seen. We'll see how how far in that direction we go. But I think it's a good point to to keep in mind. You know, all these things, long run, if you're producing, you're, you're, you're selling less dollars to buy oil, you're potentially getting more, less imports, is that all dollar bullish over, we'd say, all this oil fracking stuff? Uh, yeah, I think so for uh, at least the, the, the near future. I mean, obviously, going further forward, how far uh, how far oil is going to go as a main provider of energy is, uh, is, is a big source of debate again, and, and sure. that's something that I've been thinking about too and and you know once we're all solar and wind and and everything else that's uh, that's renewable oil is going to stop being such a big deal uh, so yeah. long run you know is a tough thing but uh, I'd long say, run we're all dead yeah exactly <laughs> and paying well, a lot of taxes uh well for one or the other i guess but uh but i think in the short run i think uh dollar and and oil are uh not unrelated. Yeah. Wes, we got about two minutes left. Um, maybe we haven't really talked about uh, one of the things I wanted to give you some chance to talk about. I know you know I'm planning to join you in a few weeks on your March for the Fallen trip. Maybe talk a little bit about what you're trying to do there, uh, people, if you're fold up or if you're still looking for more people to attend with you. 
Sure. So um, if you're insane and crazy and you like to exercise a lot, uh, we've got an event. We're doing a 28-mile ruck march uh, here about an hour and a half from uh, Pennsylvania. And the event's obviously for a great cause. It's March for the Fallen, you know, honoring those that uh, gave the ultimate sacrifice. And if you're interested in attending, you get to hang out with a bunch of geeks like Jeremy and I and uh, probably 50 or 60 others. Uh, So feel free to just Google March for the Fallen Alpha Architect. We have a blog entry that kind of explains a little bit more. And if you sign up there, you'll you'll be in my logistics, and we'll be able to take care of you from there. Yeah, I hope I can make it with you, Wes. I mean, I know you got the pack going, and you've got all that. I'm trying to just make it as far as I possibly can. Yeah, for, for normal people, just show up and, and walk and hang out. If you're, like I said, crazy and or been training for a while, you, you could try the ruck version of it. But that's not recommended for, for most people. How long do you think that walk takes us? It's going to take all day. We, we got to get Nick out there, man. We, if we want to oh, geek man. out on uh, currencies, we'll be we'll be professionals by the end of the <laughs> end of the ten hour march out there. Yeah, see, I'm not as tough. I don't have the marine training that uh, Wes here does, but uh, it's a, it's a very good thing to do and uh, very impressive too. Yeah, I'm I'm getting my training on. Uh, last week I was in Maine doing some walking and and hiking and thinking I'm getting ready for Wes's trip. Yeah, hey, we're high on life. And exercise. So, so, Wes, you want to give two seconds for the next show we try to do together a little bit later, a few months? Yeah, yeah. So in a few months, we've got a uh, an academic that, that Nick knows well, a guy named uh, Lu Zhang, who's uh, a bit controversial in the sense that he has different opinions on uh, factor models and what explains value premium. And there will be a lot of inside baseball conversations between him and... <laughs> You know, Eugene Fama and the rest of the academic industry. So, Well, thank you for coming on. We're trying to enjoy to do these shows with you. Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, Nick Rusinoff, finance professor here at the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.